Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, everybody, and welcome back once again to Dirty Sexy History. My name is Jessica Kale, and as you are probably aware, I am really weirdly into the history of syphilis. But when you study sex and history, it's something that comes up a lot. We've talked about it on this show before, and plenty of great historians have written about it. But what about the broader history of men's sexual health? My guest today is Dr. Jennifer Evans, author of the exciting new book, Men's Sexual Health in Early Modern England. Jennifer spent an incredible nine years researching this book, and it covers a lot of ground. Today, we're talking about the different health issues that men were dealing with in the 17th century, their experiences with different types of medical practitioners, how venereal disease was identified and treated, infertility, aphrodisiacs, and even astrology in medicine. It is a fascinating topic, and I hope you enjoy it. So here's my conversation with Dr. Jennifer Evans. All right, everybody. My guest today is Dr. Jennifer Evans, author of Men's Sexual Health in Early Modern England. Jennifer, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks very much for having me on. Oh, we are so excited to have you. Um, of course, as our audience knows, uh, I am kind of obsessed with the history of venereal disease. So obviously when I saw that somebody was writing a book about men's sexual health, I had to get a copy. So this book is just so fascinating. It's a really, really interesting medical history. And I am so excited to get your perspective on, on this uh, very interesting subject. So the new book, it's a medical history of certain ailments that affected men throughout the early modern period. But, you know, of course, we're still going to recognize these things today. These are things that are still happening that men and, you know, women to, to some extent still have to deal with. Um, so uh, some some of these things that you talk about, uh, like syphilis and the venereal disease, you know, our, our listeners might have heard about before, but you also talk about like hernias and kidney stones. So uh, what illnesses did you focus on and what made you want to research them? So the book takes a kind of broad view of sexual health. It's, it's a little bit of a misleading label in some ways, but it's, it's a more all-encompassing one. So really, I'm looking at things that perhaps in modern medical terminology would come other genitourinary conditions. Mm -hmm. So I'm interested in anything that affected the groin, the reproductive system, the urinary system, um, anything that is particularly uncomfortable, shall we say, for men. Um, and it covers all kinds of things, as you say, hernias, quite common, um, particularly um, in the 17th century, but still today. 
kidney stones, incredibly uncomfortable um, and affect, again, men in the past as much as today. And then there's the slightly more unusual conditions that crop up less often in the book. Um, things like phimosis, which is a, a tightening of the, the um, ligament that holds the foreskin on um, and issues to do with kind of impotence and, and venereal disease. So a bit of everything is covered in the book. And I was really interested in tackling these conditions because I spent the early part of my career working on uh, the history of infertility and the history of aphrodisiacs in the 17th century. And most of the academic discussions in those areas are all about women's bodies. Um, it's thought that in the 17th century, in medical terms, the, the woman's body is dominated by her uterus. It's, mm -hmm. it's responsible for everything. And so reproductive disorders have really been looked at in detail for women. But there wasn't as much for men. Academics have looked at impotence and what that means and, and how that was kind of responded to. But men suffered from much more than just impotence. And I, I realized there was kind of a bigger, juicier, more complex story to, to dig into there. So that's what I went ahead and did for nine years. Oh, my goodness. What an achievement. And, and you certainly did. There's so much incredible information in this book. Now, um, as we've seen in recent years, which, of course, you mentioned in your introduction, men tend to seek medical attention less frequently than women. Was this also the case in the early modern period? Yes, absolutely. But it is a little bit more complicated than that. So today we're used to hearing that that men are kind of reluctant to speak to doctors. Um, and in fact, that was another thing that prompted me studying the book. I'm sure we all have a man in our life somewhere who has not sought help when they needed it. And I had several. Um, and they made me wonder about what it was like in the past. And when I started reading the medical texts, one of the things that came out is these physicians and surgeons writing all the time that that men neglect their own bodies, that they leave things too long um, and they're exacerbating their health problems because they're not seeking help. But the difficulty is, is that those medical writers want men to seek help from them, not mm -hmm. just anybody. And actually, the more I researched, the more I found that men did seek help just not from physicians and surgeons in the way that they wanted. So they were talking to their friends or their family um, and they were consulting uh, un unlicensed healers, what they call irregulars or quacks, um, which is probably a term that most of us are familiar with. So you have people like the Civil War surgeon, Richard Wiseman, complains at one point that one of his patients, it's a venereal disease patient, um, has employed an empiric that he formerly knew in Italy rather than coming and being treated by him. So they are complaining that men aren't seeking the, the kind of the right kind of help rather than no help at all. It's just the wrong kind. Mm, yeah, it's like uh, going to the doctor today and uh, depending on, on who you see, they're, they're irritated that you went to a chiropractor or the chiropractor is irritated that you went to a regular doctor and, and everybody's down on acupuncture or it just depends on who you're talking to. <laughs> and everybody's annoyed that you've been on the internet and Googled it. Um, yeah. Nobody that. So yeah, it's that same kind of theme. You have to be seeking appropriate medical advice from trained professionals. And um, that's kind of what the, the people writing these books want men to do in the 17th century. And I think they're just a bit frustrated that they're not doing that. Right. But the more things change, the more they stay the same. <laughs> That's one of those things that definitely rhymes. That's so interesting. So uh, what was the experience of seeing a doctor or a quack like for men in the early modern period? Like, why might they go and uh, why would they maybe attempt to treat themselves at home if they could? So 
one of the kind of key differences looking at the 17th century from from today, um, particularly as a, as a Brit, is we have the wonderful NHS. You know, we get sick, we stroll to the doctor's office or as it is now, you phone them and wait on hold to try and get an appointment. But we see a doctor at a doctor's surgery and we don't necessarily have our own individual doctor. You just see any doctor in the surgery who's free. But for 17th century men, they're, they're paying for their health care. So they have decisions to make. And the first one of those is, is where they want to spend their money. Physicians are university trained, but fairly expensive. Surgeons and apothecaries are slightly less expensive, depending on how prestigious they are. Um, and they might also be able to diagnose you and help you. So the first thing a man in the 17th or 18th century is going to do is figure out where he's going, who he's going to talk to. And they go for a whole host of reasons, um, the same as we do now. But really, the men in, in this book, it seems to be when things get very painful. Um, and, and this is something we all know, right, that being damaged in the genitals is not a pleasant experience for men. Yeah. Um, <laughs> all the jokes come, come out. Um, and it's the same in the 17th century medical books universally agree that the genitals and the reproductive organs are incredibly sensitive and that conditions that cause swellings or bruising hernias um any kind of damage i have a couple of guys who fall off horses and catch their mm. testicles just Ouch. makes you even thinking about it um have a man who steps over a, a gate and catches himself all of those kinds of things are known to be very very painful and it's when that pain really builds up and starts interfering with their daily life. That's when they go and they make a choice about who they're going to see and they get some some help. Um, they do do a lot of treatment at home. And this, again, is something that medical writers are not necessarily happy about, but is fairly common practice for the 17th century. We have a lot of manuscript recipe books that have survived. They contain culinary recipes, um, you know, how to prepare cod for dinner on one end. And then in the back portion, they tend to have medical recipes as well. And so we see lots of recipes for things like bladder stones in particular. Mm -hmm. um, lots of stuff about kind of um, breaking up stones in the body, things to take that will break down stones so that you can pass them naturally. And that really shows us where men don't want to seek help. And that's partly because the help that they need is surgical. And nobody really wants a surgeon cutting into their, their genitalia at this time. Um, there's no anesthesia. There's no antiseptic. There's no antibiotics. Surgery is an incredibly risky, dangerous thing to do. So when it's something like that, you see many, many more recipes written down for maybe we'll try something at home first. When that fails, then OK, I'll go and see a surgeon. Um, but it's a very different kind of experience when they get there as well. You do have physical examination. So a doctor will take your pulse um, and surgeons will prod and poke you um, to try and figure out what's what's going on. But your narrative is very important as a patient. You kind of describe your history and your illness and your symptoms to your physician or surgeon. And that is what helps them to diagnose you and, and kind of make a treatment plan. So it's a fairly different experience to what we're used to today. Mm, yeah, so interesting. Um, the, the waiting until the last possible moment before you go in, that sounds more like what's going on in the US, because of course, it's so expensive to see a doctor, you know, so it's it's always like, well, do you really have to go to the ER, you know, because you know, it's going to be very expensive, and you're going to be paying it off for a while, you're going to take that financial hit. And then of course, at the time, as you say, there's no antiseptic, 
there's no there's no painkiller. If if these men are going in for these very painful conditions, then they have to be operated on. I mean, you can imagine that there would have been complications sometimes. You know, like when is the the cure worse than the condition? Yeah, it's it's really quite harrowing reading some of these kind of observations that you find in medical texts. Um, and certain surgeries were notoriously painful. So cutting mm. for the bladder stones, lithotomy, um, is notoriously dangerous. Um, and and um, people worry about undergoing that one. And John Evelyn, who's a, a gardener, he writes a very lovely diary of the 17th century. He's traveling in France and he witnesses uh, a young boy being cut for the stone. And he writes this very moving passage where he talks about the young boy's kind of fortitude and bravery and almost happiness at undergoing the surgery when the stone's removed. And it paints this very heroic picture of this young boy but what always strikes me is the last line where he says something along the lines of it makes me very glad I've never suffered with it so they're they're seeing these kind of difficult surgeries taking place and and thanking their lucky stars that they don't they don't have to go through it um which is it's quite an interesting thing to read on the page from hundreds of years later Oh, absolutely. My goodness. It's uh, it's frightening to think about. I, I think everybody will be very grateful that we do have modern medicine and anesthetic. <laughs> That's the one thing as a medical historian, I'm constantly grateful for, for modern science and the NHS. <laughs> yes. Yes, absolutely. Oh my goodness. So of course, as we tend to focus on sex and history on the podcast, you know, I have to ask you about venereal disease. <laughs> so we know that syphilis came to Europe during the 15th century and then spread exponentially from there. Can you walk us through the early days of syphilis in Europe? How quickly did it spread and what were the earliest theories as to how it was happening? Yeah, so venereal disease is normally pinpointed to around 1494 or 1495 and as you say it spreads really rapidly once it starts being seen in Europe um, and the first thing to note that I'm sure many of your listeners are already aware of is that we talk about it as syphilis but actually the label that they're using venereal disease covers a range of different conditions and um, the most familiar to us are syphilis and gonorrhea they're both considered the same thing different versions of the same thing um, but there are also other diseases that we can't quite so easily pinpoint that are all under that umbrella mm -hmm. um, what i find fascinating about syphilis in the in the medical text is there's kind of two theories circulating about where it comes from um, so the first theory is that it's the result of the french king um, charles the siege of naples um, and medical writers kind of blame his army for spreading it all through through Italy. And then when they return home, they spread it there, too. Um, and some people blame Italian prostitutes. It's mm -hmm. their fault. They've spread it to the French. Um, and then there's another theory that the Italians had spiked for French wine with the blood of lepers and that that creates this new kind of condition. Um, and that's the most popular kind of theory of what's going on. There is a second theory um, circulating that Columbus brought the pox back from Hispaniola, so what is now Haiti and the Dominican Republic, when he gets back to Spain in 1493, um, there are signs of illness amongst some of his crew. So some of the medical writers think that, that that's where it's come from. Um, I think the most interesting thing is that for anyone writing about it, 
it's a it's a nationalistic topic it has to be someone else's fault yes <laughs> it's always the french disease um and in other nations they they blame other nations for it so it's always somebody else's fault it's never your own country's fault um and they talk about how it's spread in different ways as well so it becomes fairly obvious fairly quickly that sexual um intercourse is implicated uh in how it's spread but they also opt for these kind of um, innocent explanations. So they think it can be caught through shared cups or bed linen and shirts. Um, and in part, that's because it's the only thing they have that seems similar is, is leprosy. So they're relying on some of their kind of traditional understandings of leprosy to explain what's going on. What I really love is that later on in the 17th century, those innocent explanations are kind of blown apart as a myth. So Richard Wiseman, um, the surgeon I mentioned, he says that the people who talk about the innocent ways of contracting the illness are using it as excuses for um, kind of morally corrupt patients who are shy and coy and don't want to admit that they've got venereal disease. So they move through this shift where they really start to focus more on the sexual transmission um, later on in the, in the 17th century. But they also understand that you can catch venereal disease through breastfeeding, so it can pass um, by breastfeeding to children, and that children can be born with it, so um, babies can catch venereal disease as they pass through the birth canal. Mm -hmm. So the, the overall perception that they draw from these theories is really one that it's a disease that kind of infiltrates and destroys families um, and, and kind of breaks apart social bonds, and I think that's a really interesting kind of element to it. It is. Gosh, it's really interesting. So what was the average man's sex life like in the early modern period? And how was this maybe conducive to the spread of VD? It's it's a really difficult question to answer. Um, most historians of sexuality grapple with these same questions that you know, no one writes down their sex lives meticulously for historians to pour over in the future. Um, very rude of them. How did they not know would want to know later on? Um, and in theory, sex is supposed to take place within marriage, it's supposed to be heterosexual, and it's supposed to be driven by a desire for children. Um, and in that kind of context, VD shouldn't spread particularly quickly. But we know that in reality, particularly from church court records and secular court records, that people are engaging in adulterous affairs, premarital sexual activity. Um, there's a range of... Um, same-sex sexual activities going on as well as heterosexual sexual activities um, and so we see these kinds of snippets and insights that show us people are quite liberal in some ways with their their sex lives um, Samuel Pepys the the famous diarist and naval administrator he records many many indiscretions in his diary in code so that um, people can't read them later I think he'd be horrified to know that everybody knows that he was a shameless adulterer yeah. <laughs> but, but we find kind of snippets from him and there are other kind of interesting case studies Lawrence Stone wrote a very fascinating article about um what he calls a libertine group in Norwich um and it's a, a group of people all living in one house some of them are lodgers um, the main man of the house is a man called Samuel Self but he engages in this plot to try and get his wife to commit adultery and then there's lots of group sex and lots of wife swapping and 
flagellation and voyeurism and all kinds of interesting things going on. And so when we see those kinds of elements of people's sex lives, you can start to see why venereal disease did spread so so rapidly. Um, and that doesn't even start to think about the kind of trade in, in sex and prostitution that was also probably fueling a lot of the spread as well. Yes, of course. And there's so much uh, confusion around it. One of the one of the funniest, I don't know, I think this is funny. This is probably just me having a sick sense of humor. But one of the things that I came across, like in my own research, was that um, uh, around the kind of the time of the restoration, right? There, there was some confusion about, how, you know, how you could contract VD. Like mm -hmm. they, they thought that you could get it from women, but not from other men. So um, there's this wonderful biography of, uh, of the Earl of Rochester, obviously, you know, of course yeah. we love him. <laughs> um, and he came across this, uh, this sort of like secret gentleman society in France um, where they had sworn off sex with women because they thought that if they only had sex with each other, then they would never catch syphilis. Uh, and of course that is, not the case. Uh, but, but, you know, seeing them that they were thinking this this way at the time. Um, and then, of course, he wrote uh, he wrote this wonderful kind of ode to condoms and everything as well. Um, <laughs> but, you know, we've talked about that on the show in our condom episode. But just just seeing how how the understanding of VD is changing, you know, in, in real time as it's spreading and people are trying to figure it out. And it seems like there's a lot of confusion and a lot of um, uh, sort of misinformation and things kind of going around. Um, and and it's so it's so sad to think about like how many people would have contracted it thinking that they were, you know, being completely safe as well. Uh, but there were some ways that people thought that you could spot it, right? So uh, many venereal diseases are harder to identify in men who are less likely to have obvious, like visible symptoms in some cases. So how did they think that you could identify a man with venereal disease? Yeah, it's a really tricky one, um, particularly when you read medical texts, because they, they're emphasizing all these terrible symptoms. Um, and uh, Olivia Weiser has done some amazing work on the way in which uh, medical writers construct themselves as kind of detectives, uncovering the truth when their patients inevitably lie about having venereal disease. And, and, and they use bodily signs to do that. But it was quite a tricky thing to diagnose. You know, the, the rash on the skin might be mistaken for scurvy. Um, and some of those symptoms do overlap a lot with other conditions. So figuring out that it was venereal disease is, is, a, is a tricky thing. Um, there are lots of very gross stories in the medical texts about kind of oozing discharge in particular being a key sign. Um, and then the ulcers on the genitals. Um, and eventually there are some really, really kind of extreme cases of, of kind of genital gangrene um at that point most people have, have relented and admitted that they've they've got venereal disease but if you're not a doctor one of the things you could potentially look for is is kind of patchy facial hair <laughs> so it's it does make sense when you you kind of think it through in a 17th century mindset so for 17th century people facial hair is a byproduct of the process of producing sperm what they call seed and um, so you eat your food food is concocted into blood blood circulates around the body reaches the testicles and is concocted again into seed and what's left over from that process what they say are kind of the vapors of that process ascend up the body and are pushed out of the pores of the face as hair um, and so if you have a condition that's disrupting the testicles it makes a logical amount of sense that it will disrupt your ability to grow facial hair um, and 
And so you see lots of kind of snippets of discussion here and there about, well, it's a man with venereal disease will have his facial hair falling out. Um, and so we have books like Little Venus Unmasked um, from 1670 that says even the slightest sort, that's how he terms it, Gideon Harvey says, the slightest sort of infection will cause the hair of the head and the beard to shed. Um, my favourite description of this actually comes from the very popular writer Nicholas Culpepper, who claimed that the shedding of the hair made men ridiculous, some appearing without a beard and some without hair on their eyebrows and others with bald pates. Um, and his kind of phrasing just makes it sound like the worst thing you could possibly <laughs> be going through at that moment is losing your beard. But it's very visible. Um, and I did find, I found one case study where... Um, a physician was looking at a patient to see how bad his venereal disease was and said, well, he's still got his beard, so it, it can't be that bad. Um, so yeah, being able to spot someone's patchy facial hair might be a bit of a, a giveaway that something's gone awry. Oh my goodness. It seems a bit unfair because, you know, of course, some men do just have patchy facial hair and you don't want to yes. walking around thinking like, oh, well, that guy's got to see a doctor, you know? Yeah, um, it's it's quite interesting as well as you move into the 18th century because beard wearing becomes less popular, clean shaven faces become more popular at that point. Um, beards are thought to kind of hide uh, the truth of your face. And so I wonder what was going on in that kind of slightly later era where people were just clean shaven. Um, and I think it probably fades away as a, as a, as a sign of venereal disease um, when you get to that point where fashion has just overtaken medicine. My goodness, it's so funny to think about. But yeah, I mean, as you say, of course, uh, and people might grow beards for other reasons too, you know, mm -hmm. hiding uh, kind of pock marks and scars and yeah, anything like that we don't really think about anymore. Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. it's, it's, it is fascinating. Um, there's a whole fascinating history of, of facial hair out there. There is, there is. Oh my goodness. So we've talked about the history of condoms on this podcast. And uh, and of course, that was the first thing that I was thinking about as I was reading uh, th this chapter specifically. So condoms, as we would recognize them, were invented around this time to pre prevent syphilis, which I kind of alluded to a minute ago. Um, but what can you tell us about early modern efforts to prevent venereal disease? Of course, condoms weren't the only ones, but were there other things that they were doing to, to try to stop it spreading? Um, I think it's it's quite tricky to to figure out from the sources that I'm looking at, um, because by the time my men are being written about by these medical writers, they're it's too late. They've they've already got it. Um, and I think really avoiding anyone who's who looks like they might have venereal disease is is possibly the way that they were trying to avoid the condition. Um, but as we've said, it it could be quite difficult to spot. Um, I have one poor man who, um he's a virgin when he marries, he, he gets married and very quickly gets venereal disease and, and goes to the physician and doesn't really know what's wrong with him because he's only just embarked on his kind of sex life. Um, and so he's a bit confused. And then it, it comes out that his, his wife um, had venereal disease when they got married through some unfortunate circumstances. Um, and so he has tried, right? He's waited until marriage, he's done all the right things, and he still ended up with, with syphilis. So mm -hmm. I'm, I'm not too sure how people are avoiding it. But my favorite theory I've seen in a medical book um, is in John Brown's The Surgeon's Assistant. And he draws on the idea that heat helps to create the disease, it kind of breeds it inside the body. And that heat is also implicated in desire. So um, 
sexual arousal requires heat in the 17th century. So he decides and explains in this book that having sex with ugly partners will help you avoid venereal disease because, <laughs> because you won't be so aroused when you're having sex. And so the heat of your body will remain lower and therefore you're less likely to catch the disease in a, in a severe form. Um, I have never seen that repeated anywhere else. I, I don't know quite where he developed this idea from, but that's his theory. If, 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 I, if we stick with ugly partners, we'll be safer and we won't catch quite such virulent venereal disease. Wow. Oh my goodness. That sounds like um, a little personal. It sounds like an argument that he's using to try to get women to date him specifically. (laughs) Like I'm not a 10, but I'm not going to make you sick. Yeah. It's, it's the most, one of the most bizarre little snippets I've come across is this, this weird idea that, you know, well, I'll just start choosing my partners based on how aroused I feel. um, And that'll keep me safe. Oh my goodness. Yeah, it's uh, it's kind of like a double-edged sword though because if you if you don't really want to then you know like why bother, <laughs> you know. So John Martin who's a an early 18th century surgeon, he he also talks about the fact that you need kind of um heat and arousal for for things to work and he his his take on this kind of issue is that um ugly partners are a problem because it it makes it difficult for men to perform because they just they just don't feel aroused enough to engage in sexual activity um so as i say i think john brown's pretty out there on his own but it is certainly something they're thinking about is kind of the relationship between arousal and heat and disease wow that is absolutely incredible now a minute ago you mentioned genital gangrene and two more horrifying words i don't think have ever been put together <laughs> So speaking of which, right, in the 1724 edition of Daniel Turner's book, Syphilis, he describes a terrifying sounding surgical procedure where a tumor is removed from a man, leaving him with, quote, a stump of an ill-favored penis. Poor guy. Despite the obvious trauma of the surgery, he claims that they cured him, um, something that I didn't think was even possible before penicillin. So um, can you tell us any more about, about this surgery or other kind of treatments for syphilis at the time? Yeah, so um, I think that that's one of the quotes that has stuck in my mind the most um, from writing this book. There were some really, truly graphic descriptions Mm -hmm. of surgeries and treatments for a whole host of of things for men's bodies. Um, uh, And I think this one shows us the kind of difficulties, actually, of of curing syphilis at this time. So the, the first thing to know is that when they use phrases like cured or perfectly cured, they're not using them in the same way that that we would understand now. Um, when we want a cure, we expect to be free of disease by the end of it. Um, but for early modern people, cured can mean something quite different. So normally you agree on a set of symptoms that will be reduced by the time you're through your treatment. And that's kind of the nominal point at which you're cured. Um, and actually men are left with all kinds of difficulties after they're cured or lingering ongoing symptoms. Um, There's quite a few old men in my book. I I look at old men's experiences um, who are treated for some for venereal disease, some for hernias. They have operations um, that that, uh, 
kind of cut into the, the perineum and then they're left with fistulas um, and kind of leaking urine for years on end that they the only thing they can do is plug them with bits of um, folded cloth so what they call kind of tents um, and they they take those in and out to urinate um, and those men are incredibly unhappy but the surgeons writing about it kind of write with with a little bit of um, kind of shock that well why are they grumbling why are they complaining to me why are they moaning they're fine I've cured them but clearly for those men cure doesn't mean that they're well and healthy they've been left with these ongoing conditions and that's something that would have made sense to syphilis patients because the treatment for syphilis which I'm sure you know is is quite horrific in itself um so uh, treatments for syphilis normally involve purging pox out of the body that initially in the early days could be done through sweat urine vomit stool um bleeding any of those uh, as they become more settled in their treatments it's normally done by salivation so spitting um, by stool and it's done with the application of mercury um mercury being incredibly toxic to the human body not something you really want to go near if you can help it but they mix it with hogs grease and smear it as an ointment across the body or they kind of burn it on coals and fumigate their patients or they're giving it for ingestion as as pills um, and once you've taken that you're then confined to a warm space and your amount of sweat and spit is monitored by your um practitioner um and given in large doses you know you can you can spit pints a day it's it's not a pleasant process Ooh. and you're doing that kind of four to six weeks at a time mm-hmm. um and kevin sienna who's done probably the most work on on 17th century syphilis treatments um points out that this drove what he calls venereologists so whole hosts of surgeons and physicians who just treat venereal disease to offer quicker alternative remedies things that meant you could still walk around and you wouldn't be kind of confined anymore um and the other reason they're looking for alternatives is that mercury treatment causes pain nausea uh, permanent damage to your nose uh, your uvula your gums your teeth might fall out so you go through quite a horrific disease only to be treated with something that that comes with a whole host of of symptoms of its own um and there aren't too many alternatives there are some that come in from the new world so the use of guaiac or pockwood um and doctors sometimes prescribe sarsaparilla or china root um, or other herbs, but th- there aren't too many other options. Um, so they are treating venereal disease, but but cure when they say they've cured a patient. I think we tend to take that with a with a pinch of salt. Um, it might be that the patients in one of those remission cycles that come with syphilis, um, or those particular symptoms have cleared up, but they're they're probably not healthy as we would expect them to be. Oh my goodness, it's just awful to think about. Goodness. Now, two of the common complaints that you write about are impotence and infertility, both of which can be caused by venereal disease. So how concerned were men with these issues at the time and how were they treated? Yeah, so I think this is the kind of central point of what I found in my research is that all of these conditions that affect um, the genitals and the reproductive organs are in one way or another framed around this discussion of infertility and impotence. Um, And the two are obviously inextricably connected, but then they're not the same condition for people in the 17th century. Um, You know, you can be 
impotent and nominally still fertile, although it's obviously very difficult to figure that out or prove it. Um, and you can be infertile and be sexually capable. So they're, they're separate conditions, but they're, they're very much connected. And they're connected because of the, the kind of non-medical or social experience of everyday life. Um, you know, impotent men are ridiculed for not being able to satisfy their wives. They're normally um, labeled as cuckolds whose wives have gone off to find satisfaction elsewhere. Um, and they're, they're seen as kind of emasculated and, and more feminine in some ways than other men because potency is a key part of 17th century masculinity but the way that that's seen by other people is is in some ways your lack of children you know people aren't there in the bedroom all the time um although they do have potency trials in some countries where men have to prove their virility um but so what people are really looking for is that kind of children are a visible sign of your potency and so infertility is incredibly important. Um, and again, in the early days, historians tended to focus on infertility as a, a woman's issue. Um, but increasingly, scholars have written about all the ways in which childlessness affected men as well and shaped their concepts of kind of credit and honour um, and their social interactions. So infertility and impotence were both quite damaging issues. Um, they're treated in, in several different ways, normally with um, internal medicines of one kind or another. Um, but one of the things I found really interesting in this research is surgical texts, more than texts written by physicians, surgical texts emphasize that good surgeons will preserve your fertility. So if you need cutting for the stone or if you need a herniotomy, they will do it and you will still be able to have children afterwards. And they include all these stories of men who've been through the procedure and then fathered children afterwards as a kind of testament to their skill um, in preserving fertility. So depending on where we look, you can see how important fertility and impotence are to men. Gosh, that is so interesting. Now, earlier, you mentioned that you've done quite a bit of research on aphrodisiacs. So, of course, I need to ask you about that. So what were some common aphrodisiacs at the time? Uh, what, what kind of things were they using? I find aphrodisiacs fascinating in this era because they are using, according to medical texts, everything and anything except tobacco. Tobacco is bad for your sexual abilities. Um, but the list of things that at one time or another are described as in some way beneficial for your sexual abilities is, is endless. Um, they, the difficulty is figuring out how people use them because most of them are fairly common foodstuffs. And so people are eating them on a regular basis. So it's knowing when they're being consumed in the right context. Um, the same as today, you know, everybody loves strawberries, but we don't consume them as aphrodisiacs every time we eat them um, but you might buy them for a special romantic occasion so I think context is quite important for aphrodisiacs but really anything that raised lust in the body was considered an aphrodisiac and they're interesting because uh, in the 17th century they are very much fertility drugs as well because pleasure and sexual desire are so bound up in what is required for sex to be generative, to result in conception, that you can't really separate them apart. Um, so you have books like um, fairly common medical texts that, that offer aphrodisiacs 
as remedies for barrenness in chapters on barrenness. Um, and they kind of group them into different types of foods. This is a little bit artificial because um, a lot of the foods cross over, but they generally fall into certain categories. So the main one is foods that heat the body. Um, you're literally kind of fanning the flames of lust. Um, and if you read them in, in ballads and popular literature, they 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 say things like we're kindling Cupid's fire, um, which I always quite like as a, as a turn of phrase. So things like ginger, mustard, pepper, anything that gives you that hot sensation when you eat it um, would have been a, a heating aphrodisiac. Um, we mentioned already that food is really important for creating seed. So anything nourishing um, that's that's kind of fleshy, so chicken, the flesh of birds, is all thought to, to help create seed within the body. And seed is really important. It's kind of cyclical. So you create seed and then seed titillates the organs as it moves through the vessels, which product prompts the production of even more seed. Um, so nourishing and seed provoking aphrodisiacs are quite commonly spoken about. Um, for men, not for women, it's actually dangerous for women, but for men, they might also consume what are called windy meats, um, foods that put wind in the body, beans, peas, chickpeas, all the usual culprits, because until the early 18th century, they think that you need wind to inflate the penis. So an erection is literally kind of inflating a windsock. Um, <laughs> that's what's written in the medical literature. I'm not just making up the windsock thing. <laughs> that's incredible. So yeah, windy meats help, help men to sustain an erection. And the longer they can do that, the more they can heat their female partner and the more chance there is of conception. And um, those fall out of favor in the 18th century once they get a better understanding of the kind of penile anatomy that falls up by the wayside. Um, and then the last group are those that work by signature. So they show you what they'll be good for. Um, so um, Nicholas Culpepper writes that partridges, quails and sparrows are very good for people to eat because they are addicted to venery, which is his word for sex. Um, and so it works the same if you eat them. So eating things, rabbits, another obvious one if you eat animals like that they will they will prompt you to to have more sex um, and plants fall in that category as well so anything that's phallic in shape carrots um might work by signature and there's an incredibly famous plant called satyrion um it's also called dog stones but it has this kind of erect fleshy stem with a little bulbous top and then two little bulbous roots at the bottom um and it when you see 17th century drawings of Satyrion, it just it looks like an erect penis. So that one's a very well-known aphrodisiac in the day. Wow. Oh my goodness. Of course, when you're talking about uh phallic-shaped vegetables, I'm thinking about like um like eggplants or like aubergine. You know, like like everybody uses that that emoji now. Uh, yes. yeah. <laughs> it's like the same kind of thing. Um, but before that, you know, of course you mentioned um you know, chicken and beans and uh spicy foods. It it just sounds like going out for tacos you know, yes. which yeah. I mean, if you ask people, that's a great way to get laid, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, you know popular. and all of those foods that are coming in from the new world are obviously new and exotic as well. So they're, they're implicated. So chocolate is the most famous example, right? That comes over um, and is immediately seen as, a, as an aphrodisiac and, and comes with this reputation that it's it's used by the indigenous populations in, in South America for that kind of purpose. So yeah, the all of the spicy, new, exciting foods. Oh, that's amazing. I, I love just thinking about how how much more varied the diets were than, than a lot of people assume. You know, I think 
so many people think that that you know before like the 20th century like nobody ever ate anything exciting you know it was all just like really depressing it was like mutton stool if you were lucky right <laughs> but but you know when of course when you look at this it sounded like they had incredibly varied diets and and eating sparrows you know you'd never consider it yeah they they do list a lot of things so some of the weird um phallic shaped ones as well they eat they eat um penises off bulls and goats and things and and horn off various animals because of the the shape of it so um but i think we also have to take it with a pinch of salt because these are medical recommendations it doesn't mean that people were eating things on a daily basis mm-hmm. um and some people's diets were incredibly varied if you're wealthy all kinds of exciting things coming into the country um but if you're poorer your diet is probably a staple of kind of beans and 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 vegetables and things so but again some of those are considered aphrodisiacs as well so yeah so you don't have to be wealthy like you can you can still have your beans and you'll be ready to go exactly yeah (laughs) that's amazing so what are the challenges of researching a topic like this and now as you mentioned in the book records from this time often use euphemisms to to spare the embarrassment of the patients yeah, the the challenge of researching this topic really is finding people's own experiences. When I went into this, I really wanted to find what men felt themselves about these conditions. Um, and it was just really hard to find. So everything that we have is layered through someone else's perception, particularly through the perceptions of medical writers who have their very own motivations for saying what they're saying. Um, and so we see all this discussion about men being embarrassed by these conditions um, and medical writers employ anonymity quite widely for other conditions as well, but here it serves them really well to protect their patients. They give very vague, um, I treated a gentleman of 50 years old and that's as much detail as you get. So it's very hard to find out what these men thought themselves about their conditions. And even if you turn to letters and correspondence, People tend to write about other people's illnesses, not their own so much. And where you do find people writing about their own illnesses, it tends to be in very pious diaries and it's all framed through kind of providence and understanding your spiritual position. So it's very hard to get at what what they felt when they experienced these conditions and how they felt about it and how they felt about their interactions with other people. Um, I think that's the the kind of biggest challenge of, of doing a history like this is you're always looking through someone else's eyes to find out about a particular person's experience. Wow. So let's talk briefly about sources. What was the medical literature like at this time and what purpose did it serve? Who was reading it? So medical literature at this time is, is again, quite interesting because a lot of it's published um, originally in Latin and then they're translated into vernacular languages across Europe. But it means you're looking at kind of a pan-European understanding of health in some ways. Um, They plagiarise each other terribly. So they reprint information from other people's sources sometimes verbatim you can literally see it move from from text to text and that includes case notes and observations of famous healers in the past so you see the same stories popping up again and again um and in a way that's quite difficult because it obscures what's particular about any one country's experience um and those countries experiences are shaped by politics and religion and economic status and all these things 
but at the same time, it means you can kind of get these broad patterns um, of what was what was going on. The difficulty with medical texts, as I've mentioned, is that they're written for a purpose. So nominally, they're they're to train incoming um, healers of various kinds, but they're also designed um, for a general reading public of, of kind of gentlemanly scholars. Um, and they're also designed largely as advertisements for a healer's own practice. A physician wants to say that he's brilliant, so he will publish his case notes and he'll edit them and select the ones that make him look good um, or that point out how patients should should act with their physician. Um, and likewise with surgeons, they're, they're picking and choosing what they say and how they explain things to show that they are the best surgeon you could possibly want to go to and so in some ways they're they're almost like instructional manuals they're instructional to um more junior physicians and surgeons but they're also instructional to readers um who might be patients you should come and seek help at an appropriate moment um, and you should listen to us and if we tell you to take certain remedies you should do that because look what happens when patients don't listen to us um, and that's why we have some of these grim horror stories in there it's to kind of nudge men to do as they're told um, and so they can be quite tricky texts to work with they're also tricky in the sense that readership is broader than perhaps people would think you know mostly medical texts are, are quite expensive books they're being bought by um, student doctors and gentlemen and other surgeons and medical practitioners but they're also circulating secondhand on the secondhand book market. So um, tradesmen and artisans might also own medical texts. And we know that some women own them as well. There's a woman called Elizabeth Walker, who's alive um, in the kind of mid 17th century. She has copies of the work of um, Lazarus Riverius, who is a French physician. And she has lots of other translations produced by Nicholas Culpepper um, and his books sell really well he's he's kind of the bestseller um of early modern medical texts and so we know that quite a few people are reading him and you see it in recipe books as well where people are copying remedies out of these printed books into their own manuscript collections but again manuscript collections are only kept by the wealthy who've got the money to do so so we're looking at kind of a, a se selection of the population but that selection shows us that early modern society is quite medically literate they're quite well versed in medical theory um, and in remedies in some cases as well gosh that's fascinating and looking at some of these um it always surprises me the the things that turn up like sometimes you you get things from folklore you get things from astrology so mm -hmm. how did these influence mainstream medicine at the time yeah i think folklore is a very difficult thing to untangle when you're thinking about medical history because there are oral traditions of of healthcare that the the non-literate are passing between themselves and how do we how do we distinguish that from folklore um there are clearly some remedies that that have ritualistic elements to them or or have a kind of folklore tradition um but i always think they're they're pretty difficult to disentangle and they're not necessarily written about by the medical writers in the text that I'm looking at. Um, they're much more interested in, in kind of moaning about quacks and mountebacks and irregulars than, than thinking about folklore. Um, so I always think it's it's interesting question, but I'm not quite sure how we how we pick it apart, how we get at it for, for these kinds of cases. 
Mm. Oh, absolutely. And um, and what about astrology? I know you mentioned that in the book and, and that I, I, I couldn't find the connection. I thought that was so interesting. So astrology for um, 16th century people in particular is kind of a mainstream practice. Um, it's not as superstitious as we might think of it today. Um, and you have some really famous astrological medical practitioners, Simon Foreman and Richard Napier, whose casebooks um, have come down to us. And there was an amazing project at Cambridge University to kind of work through those. You can Google it and find it online. Um, and they're, they're really popular and they treat people for all kinds of different things. Um, but astrology really starts to wane in popularity for medical practice into the 17th century. It's being questioned and, and kind of picked apart. Um, and you can quite happily be uh, a traditional Galenic medical healer without ever thinking about astrology, but an astrological medical practitioner will cast your horoscope and then treat you with Galenic remedies. So you're getting the same kind of treatments, um, although you might also be given an amulet or, or something alongside it. Um, so astrology is fascinating, but it, again, it's, it's kind of fading throughout the early modern period. Um, and it's not it's not very prominent in the in the books that that I was looking at for this project. Wow, that is absolutely fascinating. And there is so much interesting information in this book. You, you just cover so much. And as you say, it took nine years. It's <laughs> incredible. What an achievement. So what is next for you? And where can we find more about you and your work? So uh, you can find me on all the usual places. I'm on Twitter. I'm at Historian Jen. Um, I'm on Instagram at Cakes and History because I also bake. Nice. <laughs> so Yes, you can see some of my lovely cake creations too, um, and lots of pictures of my cats if you come onto Instagram. Um, I'm currently working a lot on experiences of miscarriage in the 17th century. So I've, I've gone back to women's bodies. Um, I've been looking at how women attempted to prevent a miscarriage when they when they feared one was happening, um, and thinking about the kind of bodily, physical toll that miscarriage took on women and, and how they recovered afterwards. Um, and I'm kind of hoping to build that into a much bigger project about pregnancy loss. Um, so thinking about the overlaps in discussions of infertility, miscarriage um, and stillbirth that all kind of coexist in this era. Um, and thinking through some kind of interesting avenues. So I'm working at the moment on traveling and how that was implicated in miscarriages and and how traveling and pregnancy loss creates kind of self-recrimination um so yes lots lots of more not very happy topics in my future research oh it sounds uh, absolutely fascinating and we'd love to hear all about it when you're finished so let's hope it doesn't take nine years this time hopefully not nine years yeah oh my goodness well jennifer thank you so much for your time we really appreciate it you've been wonderful Thank you so much for having me. It's been a really wonderful discussion. Once again, I'd like to thank Dr. Jennifer Evans for being our guest today. Her new book is Men's Sexual Health in Early Modern England, and it's out now. You can find her on Twitter at HistorianJen and Instagram at CakesAndHistory. I would also like to thank our superstar patrons on Patreon, Melanie Baker, Michael Beckwith, Bethany Bennett, Andy Christopher, Charlotte Collings, Rachel Cooney, Michelle Dunbar, James Finch, Brian Fullerton, Adriana Herrera, Sean Ingham, Emma Young, Miriam Caceres, Kirsten Lawrence, Scott Lohman, Lizzie Ortmeyer, Shannon Roth, Catherine Rowley-Williams, Icy Sedgwick, and Denny White. Thank you all so much. 
If you would like to support the show by becoming a patron, you can find us on patreon.com slash dirty sexy history. You can also rate, review, and subscribe, or find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Mastodon, and Blue Sky at Dirty Sexy History. We are also now on TikTok, God help us, and we're starting to post reels there and on our Instagram as well. So stop by and check it out. As always, our website for longer history articles is DirtySexyHistory.com. Have a great week, guys. See you next time.